It's a great day for us to be together. It is the first of the week. We're together by God's design. He is the one who has commanded that we come together and for our own good. It's also Father's Day here in the United States and I want to extend a happy Father's Day to those who have the blessed burden of being fathers. What a great responsibility that is and what a great blessing that is. The Bible tells us that children are the heritage from the Lord. We need to understand that and understand how we get to know Him better serving as we do as fathers to our children as He serves us as our Father and He calls us to serve Him. And so I want to thank you for being here today because there are so many things you could be doing. You could be out in some way celebrating earthly fathers, but you've chosen the better part. You're here with us today as we gather to celebrate our Father and His Son, our Savior. So I thank you for being here today and for that encouragement. Those who are online with us as well. And it sounds like this parable falls perfectly for a Father's Day teaching. But honestly, as I was preparing this lesson, I had not considered that it was going to be Father's Day today. It actually ties in with our congregational reading schedule for this past week. So we'll take both of those benefits together. As we look at this parable in Luke chapter 15, actually we're looking at three parables as we read through the entirety of the chapter of Luke chapter 15. There are three parables that deal with the lost and the found. We have a first parable in the first uh, verses there, 4 through 7, dealing with a lost sheep. We'll go into a little bit of the details there in just a moment. A second parable dealing with a lost coin in verses 8 through 10. And the one that Christopher just read for us, the parable of the lost son, sometimes called the prodigal son, verses 11 through 32. And I think naturally, even as Jesus did as he built to this last parable with a crescendo, we tend to focus on this last one, give a lot of attention to it, but give less attention to the other two. But it's interesting to note these three are taught together. And I want us to, to quickly note how Jesus has tied these three parables together. We are in late fall or early winter, about four to six months before the Passover. Jesus is teaching here. Uh, and he has spoken many times with these Pharisees and scribes he's going to be talking with here. He's tested their hearts. If you'll look back with me just for a moment, Luke chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered to them and said, why are you reasoning these things in your hearts? This is after he had forgiven a man of his sins and then healed him. He was a paralyzed man. But when he forgave him his sins, these men began to say, he's a blasphemer. But they said it within themselves. They didn't say it out loud. And so he asked them, why did you think that? sort of proved right there that he's divine. He can read their thoughts. He was testing their hearts, and he showed them that he could test their hearts. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he said to them as he was going to heal a man on the Sabbath, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy? And when he looked around at them all, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand restored as well as the other. But they were filled with rage and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. They began to plot evil after he had asked that question and after he did good on the Sabbath because they didn't like him healing on the Sabbath and violating their instructions about the Sabbath. So Luke describes for us at the beginning of Luke chapter 15 the situation in which Jesus speaks these parables. Let's begin reading in Luke 15 verse 1. All the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you? And he goes into these three parables. 
The tax collectors and sinners had come to hear Jesus. That is a good thing. It's what Jesus wanted. It's what the Pharisees and scribes ought to have wanted. They wanted these people that they saw as reprobates and as sinners to hear the word of God. And Jesus was openly teaching everybody who would come to him. The Pharisees would kind of put the tax collectors off and the Gentiles and these other sinners and say, well, we can't go in among you. We certainly can't eat with you. We can't be seen in public with you. Well, how are they going to teach them if they can't be seen with them? They shouldn't be involved in their sins, but they ought to be involved in teaching them the truth. And Jesus was. And as they drew near to Jesus to hear better, the Pharisees and, tax, uh, the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, ah, he's just as filthy as they are. They complained. They sound a lot like Jonah, who complained that God was going to be willing to forgive those Ninevites, those evil people. While Jonah was harboring evil in his heart, while he was lying, while he was running from God, instead of doing God's will. Because the Ninevites didn't want to do God's will. And he was afraid God was going to forgive them. How good that God was forgiving to Jonah as well. But the Pharisees and scribes complained. And because they complained, then Jesus spoke this parable to them, it says. And we get really three parables in one. But I believe the understanding, as Luke is pointing out, is that these three are one parable. It's a single lesson that uses these three stories, if you will, building from the lesser to the greater to show the hardness of these men's hearts and their misunderstanding of the way that God desires and what he desires for us. And so we have these three parables telling the same situation. It's a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And as we analyze them, I'm going to start reading in verse 4 through 7 here for the lost sheep. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. You can see in the context now exactly what Jesus is doing. He says, What man of you, talking to the Pharisees and scribes, He's made it very personal. He wants them to consider themselves as he sets up these lessons in a parable before them. He doesn't just say randomly, what if some man did this? He says, which one of you wouldn't do this? And then he tells the parable about the sheep being lost. Which man of you, if he lost one, he's got a hundred sheep, but he loses one. Which man of you wouldn't do the things I'm about to point out? That's a 1% loss. That's nothing. And in the context here, we're talking about sheep. They have a relatively low monetary value. They're not worth very much. You've only lost one. That's not a big deal. But of course it is. Any man of them who is a shepherd would recognize it as, as a big deal. In fact, Jesus points out what they would do. They would leave the other 99%, these other 99 sheep, they would leave them at risk to go out and find this lost one. Because the 99 that are at risk are at a relative risk. They're together in the, in the fold. They're together, but the one is at a great risk. He's out there lost, and he could go off a cliff. He could get eaten by wild animals. He could become lost forever. And so he goes after the one, leaving the 99 in relative safety compared to the one that's lost. It's similar to the work of a congregation. If one member is lost, 
Many suffer. Many are involved until that one is restored. In Galatians chapter 6, Paul speaks of it this way. Paul, who himself had done so much work to reconcile brethren, who had sought to bring people back from, from being lost. Galatians chapter 6, 1 and 2, he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Would you not go after someone that was lost because you'd rather just hang out with the ones who are doing okay? <laughs> of course, the one needs to be restored. It's going to require some effort, but it's personal, and we ought to be involved. What man of you wouldn't go after the one that was lost? And when he finds the one that's lost, he rejoices. Here's one that could have been lost forever, and yet I'm going to bring him home. And he rejoices by placing this animal on his shoulders, very caring, very loving. He's going to carry this poor animal home. It's been wandering, lost, it's worn out. He's going to take it into his arms and bring it back. And then when he gets home, he gathers together his neighbors and his friends. He has a celebration because everyone knew he's been looking for this lost sheep. There's no value in this sheep. This is something that's almost no worth. But Jesus is making this story so personal and they are all involved thinking, that's exactly what I would do. That's how I would handle this. Remember the context? Here are these tax collectors and sinners, and they're going, ah, why is he talking to them? And Jesus says, but you wouldn't go scoop up a sheep that's worthless? When here's a man who's got a soul before the Lord, and you're saying, why is he talking to them? How many of us aren't similar to that? But God teaches here, Jesus teaches, there's something even more joyous then finding that lost sheep and bringing it back. In this whole story, the whole point has been, we found the lost sheep. But Jesus says there is something that's even more joyous than that. And you've got to understand this, Pharisees and scribes. There's something way more joyous than that, which you would take joy in. There's joy in heaven when one lost sinner is brought back. When one sinner, only one. It's not one of a hundred. This is one of thousands upon thousands out there. If only one comes back, there's more joy than in this relative joy of this sheep being brought home. Now, they can see that. They can all understand this story. It's not hard what Jesus is teaching. It's easy to see. But when you begin to make these connections about the way they're treating their fellow men, then it becomes hard to see. So Jesus is going to take it up a notch. <laughs> Something more joyous than bringing home this lost sheep. And so then he continues to ask, or what woman? Now, it's not as personal to these Pharisees that are there, but he does mention something. What woman who loses one of ten coins? There is money involved. Now, the coin here is not worth very much either in the context here, but you've got one out of ten. You've gone from a 1% loss to a 10% loss. That's a pretty big jump. The silver coin that he mentions here is, is a drachma in Luke's language here. It's relatively about a day's wage. Some have suggested in today's money it would be about a quarter. <laughs> That's about how much this would be worth. It's not worth a whole lot, but it's worth a lot to her. Some have suggested that this would be part of a string of 10 coins that she would wear on her neck. This is sort of a dowry, something she brings to her with her to the marriage. It's a treasure to her. It's something that her people have put together to remember them as she's married now. It's a possession she has. It's her own. As she comes into this marriage where she's now taking on the husband and his possessions. This is something to hers. It's a treasure to her. 
not of great monetary value at all, but a treasure to her. And she's lost a tenth of it, like a, a, a one-tenth percent. So what does she do? She does hard work to try and find this coin. She gets out the broom. She's going into the dark corners of the house. She's sweeping up this rough and dusty floor, trying to see if she can find this coin. And when she does, she rejoices over it. This is a, it's a big find. It's something she thought was gone forever. She gathers together her neighbors and her friends because they knew she's been looking for this coin. She's been talking about how this has impacted her, just like the other men would have talked about how losing their sheep would have impacted them. That's pretty good celebration, and yet there's something even more joyous than that. <laughs> there's joy among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is an interesting thing to say. Because it shows something about those who have drawn near to God, those who are in his sphere. As the Pharisees would say they are. Oh, we're the sons of God. Abraham is our father. God is our father in John chapter 8. And Jesus says, no, he's not, because you can't even speak the same language I do. You speak the language of your father, who is the devil. My father is God. And that's why you don't understand my language. Yet they would say, we're sons of God. We only have one father. Abraham and God are our father. But those who are closest to God, those are who his, or his sons, will desire the things that he desires. And yet the Pharisees are willing to kick out these tax collectors and sinners, though God desires them. 2 Peter 3.9, he doesn't desire that any should perish. His long-suffering is so that people will come to repentance. And yet the Pharisees are saying, why is he talking to them? What do these Pharisees desire? They desire their status. They desire to be the only ones who are the sons of God. What do we desire? What do we truly desire? Have we drawn near to God in a way that makes us desire the things that God desires? Are we sad about the things that God is sad about? Are we sad about the things that the world is sad about? And do we feel like we're missing out sometimes because we've chosen to serve God? I fear that sometimes our brethren have that feeling. Well, I can't do this or that. I, re I really want to. If I could figure out a way to do it, I would. But, you know, God probably is going to say I shouldn't do it. Someone at church might say, well, you shouldn't do that. So I probably better not. Really? <laughs> if I've drawn near to the Lord and I'm thinking about the things of the Lord, then the things that are abhorrent to him should be abhorrent to me. And the things that are a delight to him should be a delight to me. It should be a delight to go after these tax collectors and sinners is the point Jesus is making because there were things that were really joyous, but there were things that were better. And they could certainly understand that. And so Jesus had been teaching the great value of one sinner's repentance. But then he brings in the kicker story, the conclusion. And he says this now in the language of parables. This is something the Pharisees are used to using. They teach by parables. They've heard Jesus teaching by parables. It's been concrete talking about which one of you or this woman who has this money. But now, this is a certain man. This is the parable. And so they can kind of sit back now. This is when Jesus is going to bring it home. But they can kind of sit back. He's going to tie all three of these stories together, though, into this one lesson about the right attitude towards sinners and toward the repentance that brings sinners to salvation. How do we feel about repentance, honestly? <laughs> do we trust someone who comes and says, look, I've repented. I'm so sorry about that. Do we trust them? Peter struggled with that. How many times do I forgive my brother if he sins against me? Do I do it up to seven times? Hey, he was really being generous. And Jesus said, no, not seven. 
How about 70 times 7? In the same day, if he comes and says he's repentant, you're not his judge. You're not his judge. That's God who's going to judge him. If he comes to you repentant, you forgive him. Even if it's 70 times 7 times in the same day. That's an amazing thing to think about. And I think sometimes we've got our arms crossed about repentance. Well, you start showing me some fruits and I'll think about if I'm going to forgive you or not. Now, I think we ought to encourage people to bear fruits of repentance. We really ought to do that. That's an important thing for them. But it doesn't mean that we can't forgive them if we haven't started to see those fruits yet. Do we want God to treat us that way? Does it not discourage us when we get to the point where we think, there's no way God can forgive me ever again. How am I ever going to produce any fruit because I'm so discouraged? I can't serve. I'm not holy enough to do anything before God because I know He's just holding it over my head. He's waiting to smash me. That's not the way God acts. It's God who taught to be forgiving 70 times, 7 times in one day. It's God whose long-suffering is held out there so that we'll repent. Consider the goodness and severity of God, Paul wrote in Romans. It should both bring us to repentance. And so, a certain man has lost one of his two sons. It's gone from a 1% to a 10% to a 50%. No, it hasn't. Any father who's got two children or more, you can have 20 children. You lose one, that's not a... 120th loss, that's not a 50% loss, that's a 100% loss of one of your children. When people have a soul and they're lost, that's a 100% loss to God of that person. That's not a percentage loss. That person is gone. One of the two sons is gone. It's not 50%, it's so much more. And so Jesus is, is laying this out before the Pharisees about how the Father looks. The son has treated the father of no value. Give me my inheritance. What he's basically saying is, you could go ahead and be dead for all I care. I'll just go ahead and take the money you're going to give me when you die. Let me go ahead and have it now. And he leaves. He goes off to a far country. He's not interested in the father at all. Carrying on the father's name, carrying on the father's business, all he wants is the part of the money that comes to him. So he's treated the father as if he's of no value beyond whatever this inheritance is he can give him. I want to suggest to you that many people who would call themselves Christians, perhaps many of our own brethren, treat God as if he is of no value beyond whatever good he might be able to give me right now. <laughs> if he can give me a job when I'm looking for a job, that's great. But I'm not going to spend any of my time worshiping him. i got a job to do now. Thanks, God. <laughs> if he can get me out of this terrible trouble I'm in, but won't that be great because then I won't have to think about him anymore. I've come to him and asked for what I need. He gave it, so I'm going to go do my own thing. How many fathers would love a child to do that to them? You'd love the child, but you'd soon learn that that child doesn't love you. The son treats his father with no love. Just give me what's coming to me and get out of my life. And it's possible that he could have had a lot of money coming to him. That he's forced his father perhaps to close part of the business to pay off this. Whatever it is, he said, that's all I care about. And then he takes the inheritance and he spends it on things that have no lasting value. He treats his own life as he treated the father. There's no value here. There's no value in the things you've given me. I'm just going to go out and waste them all. Because the only thing that matters is the moment. Boy, that sounds like the spirit of our age. 
That is postmodernism. The only thing that matters is right now. What I feel right now. What I'm going through right now. The only thing that matters is what I think. That's what Facebook is. You read the post. It's, this is what I'm doing for these 10 seconds. 15 seconds later, here's what I'm doing now. How come you didn't give me any likes on this? It's only what I'm doing right now that matters. And that's exactly the attitude this son had. Oh, but time changes. <laughs> so the son looked terrible to all of us watching from the outside, but then we begin to see how terrible his life becomes because of this vanity, this emptiness. He goes from bad to worse. He spent all of his money on these worthless things. And then his situation changes. After he spent it all, he becomes in want because the situation where he is is bad. He goes out and he joins himself to a citizen of that country, verse 15, who gives him a job working with swine. Let's not forget our context here. We're talking about Jews that are hearing this story, Pharisees. He's working with pigs. Not only that, he wants to eat the pig's food. What's left of the pig's food? And he's not going to take it off the top. There's no one who's going to have him feeding their pigs and seeing him steal the pig's food. But if there's something left, he's going to eat that. Oh, this is awful. This is such a disgusting scene for these Jews to be looking at. And Jesus is painting a picture of their souls. This is how lost they are. That they can't see. Well, they can certainly see the condition of this man. and They ought to take pity and compassion on this man. And he finally realizes what state he's in. As he's laying there with nothing else, there's nowhere else he can go. This is rock bottom, as we would say. He recognizes that what he lost isn't all the money he spent, isn't his youth that he's wasted in doing these things. He actually lost a father who really loved him and who's paying workers an adequate wage. He's taking care of another son. He has a father who treats people with love. And so he decides, he has this dialogue in his head, I'm going to go home and tell my father, I'm not even worthy to be a son, I'm certainly not even worthy to be a servant, just make me as one of your hard hands, just put me out in the field. Not only does he think it, he gets up the courage and he goes home and says that. And his father, who's been so mistreated, so hated and so abused by this son, rejoices when he sees his son returning. It's not a one-tenth or a one-one-hundredth loss or a, even a 50% loss. This is my lost son. He says that at the end. My son was lost, and now he's restored. He rejoices to see his son returning. He rejoices so much that he calls all his friends and neighbors together and has a big party, just like they did with the sheep, just like she did with the, the coin. Of course, this man's going to do this for his son. Now, you see how personal Jesus is making this story. These tax collectors and sinners are somebody's son that's out there lost in the gutter, that's out there living this kind of life that the Pharisees have turned their nose from. This is somebody's son who is lost. It could be one of their sons. It's possible, as Jesus is telling this story. But the son who was never lost, the one who stayed home with the father, he refuses to rejoice. Isn't that interesting? This is a put my foot down moment. This isn't just a, oh, I think I'll be out doing something else. This is, I am not going in, and I am not going to this party. I am not going to celebrate, even though that is the right thing to do. What a blessing that he's come back. 
but he refuses to rejoice. But you know, as Jesus has set up these stories, every time there's been the rejoicing, then he says, but there's something even more joyous than that. <laughs> even more joyous than finding that lamb and bringing it home. Even more joyous than getting that coin and bringing it back. Even more joyous than remaining faithful with the Father. Something's even more joyous than that. What's better than being faithful? <laughs> Rejoicing with the dead who are alive again. That's what's better. <laughs> you can be faithful and live a long life in God's service. And what a great and blessed thing. That is such a good thing. But it doesn't keep you from rejoicing with others who have chosen not to live that kind of life, but have repented and have now come to live that kind of life, even if it's close to the end of theirs. Kind of like the workers in the field who'd been out working all day, and then the ones who came at the last hour got paid the same amount, and they complained against the master. Saying, that's not fair. We've been out here in the heat of the day. These just came at the very end. Should they not have rejoiced that they were all getting paid? <laughs> That's the parable. That's the point of that story. And the point here is that there is something joyous beyond measure. The salvation of a lost soul. Is it good to be a Pharisee in the service of the Lord? Well, in a sense, yes. These are, God's not condemning them for their service, for their zeal to serve Him. But in their zeal, they've forgotten God. And they've made the devil their father. In their zeal, they've forgotten lost people. And when they do bring them in, they turn them into Pharisees who forget the other lost people. Jesus complained to them about that as well. They've lost their heart for service because all they've got now is the religious pattern of service. As Jesus said later, you have turned your worship empty and vain by teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. Your mouth speaks well of me, but your heart is far from me. That's where they are. They say these great, beautiful prayers, these long prayers in the marketplace while they're devouring widows' houses. They say these long, beautiful prayers and exalt the glory of God while they're pushing sinners out the back door and saying, don't show your face around here. We don't want people to see us related to you. The sinners are coming because they want salvation. And Jesus is receiving them. But it's a parable, so it's not just for them. It's registered here because it's also for us. That's the thing we sometimes forget. The reason these are all registered here is because we need to go back and look at these and think, okay, how does this apply to me? This wasn't just something Jesus was saying so those people would get it. Are we so different from these Pharisees and scribes? Are we tempted to place more value on things that are less valuable? They were so excited about this sheep being found. They were excited. They understood that kind of rejoicing. It's amazing to me. And I want to speak a little bit about the world, the way the world thinks, but sometimes we're tempted to go along. The same people that will cry out about animal rights, and I think animals deserve certain rights. They're not humans. They don't deserve rights above humans, but they deserve to be taken care of. They're part of God's creation. We shouldn't be cruel to them. But the same people who cry out about animal rights will be the first ones that cry out about we need abortion laws that will allow us to abort all the way up to birth. That doesn't make any sense to me. So much compassion for an animal, but not for a human life. That seems so incongruent. But sometimes we can do that in our spiritual lives as well. We show so much fervor for the little things that have not much importance. 
for the function and form without looking at the heart of the matter. Like the Pharisees tithing mint and cumin and all these small things, but they've left off justice and forgiveness and grace. They ought to have done both. Are we more concerned with a financial loss or the loss of a brother in Christ? Someone said to me one time, and I I really had to think about this. Do I get more upset about the thought of a huge scratch down the side of my car or a person who hasn't been to services in three or four weeks and nobody's followed up with them to see what's going on? Or someone who I know is struggling with sin? Which one am I more upset about? (laughs) When I begin to see the things that really bother me, I'll see where my heart really is. And if I honestly would say, well, that scratch on my new car, that's something I spent five or six days worried about. Well, that person who kind of fell away, oh, they were weak anyway. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Where is my heart? Am I like the angels of God who have drawn near to God and are contemplating and thinking about and rejoicing about and crying about the things that bring joy and tears to God? Does our attitude really betray our heart's desire? The Pharisees would have been the first ones to say how righteous they were and how much they wanted what God wanted. And Jesus is calling them on the carpet and saying, no, you don't. They're in the position of this brother here who did not want to rejoice, who refused to rejoice at the bringing in of this one who had been sinning. Did you sympathize with the poor lost lamb in that part of the parable? I think we all do. Jesus was calling on their sympathy. He's lost. He's out there. You know, a wolf could get him. A lion could get him, a bear could fall off the cliff. The way Jesus tells this parable, this poor lamb is lost. And the owner goes and finds him and brings him up on his shoulders. This is just this fragile little lamb. And certainly they sympathized. Or what about this poor lady? She's lost her coin. And you can see her digging around the house. She's got her little candle out trying to look under things. And it's such a hard task. But she finally finds that coin. And she has given herself to it. We sympathize with what she's gone through. But then we come to the last part of the parable, and I think we all have a tendency to do this. We start judging that kid. (laughs) Well, look what he did. He was a jerk to his dad. He went out and he spent it on prostitutes. That's what the other brother said, and I'm sure that was part of what he spent it on. He went out wastefully spending all this money that could have been used for good. We have a noble intention behind every reason, right? He could have used that for good things. (laughs) Do we judge him because he walked away from the father? Did we judge him even after he repented? That's part of the problem. That's what this brother did. And I think in some ways we do the same thing. Well, of course he fell on hard times. He spent all his money. But i tell you what was an eye-opener for me. Not too long ago, someone taught this parable, and they had been to Africa. And they said, I want you to know that not everybody sees this parable the way Americans do. When I go to other places and teach this parable, he said, they focus on something completely different. Americans who have this work ethic, it's ingrained that we've got to be careful with how we use our money and our 401ks and got to make sure we've got our retirement set up. They only see this wasteful use of money. But you know what the Africans saw? There was a famine and he became in need. Did you notice that before? I didn't. When that was pointed out, I felt ashamed. It wasn't just that he had spent all his money. Sure, he did that if he had had the money in reserve. He would have done better during the famine. But he became in need like everybody else. 
And so he had to go find someone who would give him work, and all he could find was this pig farmer. The guy was nice and gave him work. But, you know, there's something else in here that we don't seem to notice or judge also. He spent all his money. There's a famine. He's in need. And no one gave him anything. Did anybody judge those people who saw him and didn't help him out? Probably not, because sometimes it's us, isn't it? <laughs> you know, well, he probably deserves to be there because he spent all his money on wine or beer or cigarettes or whatever it is. And no one gave him anything. Now, I don't want to encourage people to have sinful lifestyles. But I don't want someone to die because they can't find food either. <laughs> But we don't think about those other circumstances because we're so tuned to the fact that this guy's just wasteful. Just this wasteful jerk. Life and circumstance are going to happen to all of us. There may be a time we're the one that someone looks at and says, well, if you hadn't been so wasteful, what do they know of our situation? What do they know of our story? Jesus lays this out in such a way that all three of these are sympathetic. But come on. If we love this lamb more than this man who has recognized his situation and repented, something is wrong with us. If we love that one coin more than we love this man who has recognized his situation and repented, there is something wrong with us. But I fear sometimes we're more tuned to those other things. And we're doing what these Pharisees did. And it's like, well, if you haven't turned to God by now, you probably never will to someone who's saying, show me. I just want to know, is God real? I want to be able to turn to him, but I've got so many doubts. Can you just help me? No, no, you're just a sinner. That's where the Pharisees were. I don't say this because I believe this about anybody in this room. But I do know Satan. I know how he works. I know how he's fooled my heart. And I know the danger of him fooling yours. And he certainly had the Pharisees fooled. They didn't like what Jesus had to say. But Jesus says there is something so joyous here. In truth, this person, just like all others who are lost, had been taken captive by the devil to do his will. I love, I love what Paul tells Timothy. This exhortation in 2 Timothy ought to just be in our minds always. 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 24. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. People have been duped. They may have given themselves over to it, but they are captives against their will, and if they're trying to make it right, then we ought to be willing to help. <laughs> we ought to have compassion. We ought to be patient. We ought to instruct. We ought not to quarrel, but lay out before them what God has offered. They may reject it, but we need to offer it. <laughs> and certainly the Pharisees were not willing to do that. So in the case of the lamb, he left 99% at risk because it was worth it to go find the one. In the case of the money, there was hard work involved, but it was worth it to find that one coin that was lost. Even though she had nine others, it was worth it for that one that was lost. And even though there's a church full of faithful people, what a blessing. It is right that we make Miriam be glad if someone else comes along and says, I just need help. Or if someone among us says, look, 
I'm struggling. I'm not what I look like. I need your help. It is right that we make merry and be glad and say, look, this is the right step. This is the right direction. We want to encourage you to do what's right. Instead of saying, you should know better. You've been in the church how long? How often have I seen brethren turned away because they try to come in repentance? And that first rebuke may be the last also. This is the proper attitude. There's hard work involved. But he who turns a sinner away by preaching him the truth saves a person from condemnation. That's what James had to say. Second Corinthians, Paul said, that I, I wrote you this hard letter, but you repented. It was sorrowful, but you repented. And then he told them to embrace the one that they had, they had put out. Show to reaffirm their love to him. This has to be our desire because it's God's desire. And we're so thankful that he had that desire for us, that he didn't turn us away. Now, I said this is sort of a Father's Day parable because in the end, when we look at all three of these cases, the Father is rejoicing. In every one of these little parables that Jesus talked about, there's more joy in heaven. <laughs> That's involving the Father, right? That's what Jesus is doing here. There's more joy in the presence of the angels of God. They're right there before the Father. <laughs> and in this last one, the Father saw him while he was still a great way off and had compassion. The Pharisees, are you sons of the Father? Then why does your attitude not reflect it? <laughs> are we sons of the Father? Then our attitude ought to reflect it. Our desire would be nothing more today than to have someone that would be come in and, and rejoice and allow us to rejoice with the Father and with the person who's returning. That would be so great. Maybe someone who's just coming out of the world. What a great rejoicing that would be. But it may be one of us who have just struggled with sin and have fallen down so many times we felt like there's no hope. We've been afraid to talk about it. We've been afraid to seek out help because we're afraid we'll be pushed out. Maybe someone who's just quit coming because they feel like there's no way they can live up to what's expected by God. God loves us and He wants us to come home. He'll put us on His shoulders. He'll dig in every dark corner with the light of His Word. And He'll rejoice when He sees us turning from way off. He'll be rejoicing, welcoming us home. If you stand in need of that rejoicing with God, we want to help you today. If you're not a Christian, if you'd like to study about what it takes to become a Christian, if you know what you need to do and you want to come forward confessing Christ, repenting of your sins, have them washed away in the waters of baptism, we really want to help you with that. We want to rejoice with you. If you're struggling with sin as a Christian and you need encouragement and help, you don't have to come publicly, but seek someone out and talk about it and let us help you rejoice. And if you want to come publicly, we want to rejoice with you in that as well. Whatever your need may be, we're going to stand a song to encourage your repentance. Won't you come and make your need known as we sing?